Welcome to Story Talking, episode 30. My name is Laksh. I started Launchora, and I now run this podcast where I talk to a new creative storyteller every week. Now, if you're hearing this for the first time, uh, if you're listening to this as a free episode, uh, if you like what you hear, we have 29 episodes before this and more, many, many more to come after this. So you can become a member of our program on Launchora and get access to all of them. I post a new episode every week and we make one episode free every month. Now, this episode is David Peterson. And David is a conlanger, which means a language creator. And I mean, he, I met, so I'll, I met David, uh, I've known about him because I'll tell you why, because he's, he's done some awesome things, but I met him last year. I was at UC San Diego where I went to college. I was there last year to give a speech and then do a, an alumni event. And David happened to be sitting next to me at that alumni event dinner. So we got talking and I hadn't even started the podcast back then this was last last june and i knew that i if i ever started a podcast i wanted to have david on because he is so interesting he's pretty much the guy's a genius and i'll tell you why uh david invents languages from scratch which means that the language that i'm speaking right now english i also speak hindi i also understand punjabi all these languages that have existed for thousands and thousands of years, David invents his own languages for different reasons, for different TV shows and movies, and I'll tell you a list to wow you. And he gives them that history, a language that's existed for, for thousands of years, and he, he, he gives it that depth and that history, and he works on every language from scratch. And it's, it's fascinating he goes over his process. Uh, there's so much uh, that I was just blown away by. As, as You'll hear me being blown away live when you listen to the episode. But just to give you an idea of the kind of stuff that David has done. David has created languages for Game of Thrones, uh, Defiance, which is a TV show, the b- movie Bright on Netflix, he made Orcish and Elvish in that movie. Uh, he's done languages for Starcrossed, another TV show, The Hundred, which you can get on Netflix, uh, Penny, De- Penny Dreadful, uh, also on Netflix, uh, Shannara Chronicles, Emerald City, and even uh, Thor The Dark World, the, the Marvel movie. We talk about uh, the beginning of how he got into language creation. He's been doing it for 17 years almost 10 years professionally, working on all these TV shows and movies. Uh, he's written a couple of books. When he invented the Dothraki language for Game of Thrones, he wrote a book about it, uh, and the book is called Living Language Dothraki, which you can get on Amazon. He also has a book called The Art of Language Invention, which is also a YouTube series that he created. So you can get all of this information at his website, artoflanguageinvention.com. And uh, his book is called The Art of Language Invention. His YouTube series is also conveniently called The Art of Language Invention, where he'll tell you pretty much uh, 
exactly how he does every single thing when he makes up a language. And it's, it's amazing to listen to. We talk a lot about languages, talk a lot about the idea of communication and how languages, it's the foundation of telling stories. You can't tell a story without some form of language. So we talk about all of that. Uh, this is, it was a really, really fun episode for me. I was a little, I, I, I nerded out a little bit. I, I geeked out uh, because I love Game of Thrones and I've pretty much seen everything that David's uh, done a language for. So I was really excited to talk to him. I hope you guys enjoy it. This is episode 30 of Story Talking with David Peterson. Yeah, um, where, where are you at right now? I am in, I live in New Delhi. Oh, okay. Yeah. Been there? Oh, you have? Yes. When was that? Uh, uh, let me think, what year is this, 2018? Yeah. Um, I want to say 2015? Yeah, 2015. Okay. Was it for uh, work or just for fun? I mean, kind of. I was I was giving a talk at uh, at Bits Palani. Oh, all right. Yeah, that's a good school. Yeah. What was the talk yeah. about? Oh, language creation. I mean. Okay. Well. General. I, yeah, you know. <laughs> I wasn't sure if if that's something that that school focuses on. It certainly is not, but uh, they were excited to have me there. <laughs> that's great. Well, India is. Uh, People in India love Game of Thrones. I think uh, they must have been excited for sure. We were oh, big yeah. fans. We get the censored version. But, really? Yeah, but we also get the uncensored version if you download this like app that News Corp made. Uh, it's really funny. <laughs> wow. Like In India, News Corp owns the rights to airing uncensored Game of Thrones. That is weird. Yeah, yeah. Huh. But it's like a really it's like the Indian Netflix this app. Huh. Even though uh, we have uh, Netflix. And, right. And I, I, I also didn't know that there even was a censored version of Game of Thrones. Is it um like is it the production company itself that's censoring it? Or oh, who's doing I don't, it? No, no. I it's the so in India censorship is a really weird issue. Uh, hmm. we don't like up until the American movies started coming here in theaters. Like we still don't, I think when I was a kid, we never saw people kissing on TV or movies. They would cut out all kissing. So, uh, you would see a movie like something like the Titanic. I think that Titanic was the first movie where they allowed them to show graphic nudity. Wow. Because it was, it was uh, like a long scene, you know, when he draws her, so yeah, that was the only time I remember I was uh, seven years old in the movie theater and I couldn't believe what was happening because we, we all looked at each <laughs> other and it was like it, we were told that we were we've never seen, you know, boobs. <laughs> <laughs> Our entire country wow. had never seen them on, on the screen. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So huh. Game of Thrones gets completely cut out. Uh, all this, all any nudity is cut out. They don't even. It's not even like they. Sometimes they do this weird thing where they zoom in on the parts where there is no nudity. But Game of Thrones is hard to do that because sometimes you know <laughs> Tyrion would be in an orgy scene. 
<laughs> yeah, and they can't right. really, they can't just focus on his face. <laughs> so, and then all the, all the language, um, mm. in India, they can't even say breastfeeding on TV. How about that? They, they, That's they bleep wild. out the word breast. So all you hear huh. is feeding. Yeah. But still so a big funny. market. Yeah. Still a big market for Game of Thrones that they, you know, put in, they put a lot of money here. Yeah, it actually reminds me, I, I did a book on the Dothraki language called Living Language Dothraki. And, and initially, we wanted to do a chapter of, of swearing, and HBO said no. I thought, oh, that's a little unfortunate. But then also, we were just doing a chapter on body parts. So, you know, hand, leg, stomach, and, and just one of the body parts we included was nipple. And they right. said, no. I was like, what? I mean, it's in a section on body parts. Like, it's just a list. Mm -hmm. But they refused. And this was from HBO. I was like, oh, okay, all right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if they set, if, if they're setting the standard, then I, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Were you, uh, I think I saw on your schedule, like on the website that you um, just, I was actually just, in Massachusetts uh, at, a, at a convention there. Is that one, is it WonderCon um, you were at? I, uh, I got passes to WonderCon, which I gave to my little sister and she used with her friends. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I was I was one okay. of the guests there. Were you were you at a panel? Just a in, local convention uh, called Conbust. Uh, uh, I went with my wife okay. and our young child, and we had a lot of fun. Okay. Were you born in California, or are you from? Were you born somewhere else? Yeah, absolutely. I was born in Long Beach, which is a part of Los Angeles. Right. And uh, and then the uh, so in Southern California right. and then I grew up in San Pedro, which is a different part of Los Angeles, lived for a year in Fresno and then moved to Orange County, which is south of Los Angeles. And I uh, was there till high school. So the only time I didn't live in Southern California was for four years when I went to UC Berkeley up in right. the Bay Area. Otherwise, I've lived my entire life in Southern California. Uh, I absolutely love it here. I, I wouldn't live anywhere else, I don't think, um, unless things, you know, really start to get bad uh, yeah. up at the executive level, in which case we'll have to find a different sure. country to live in. <laughs> well, hopefully it won't come to that. It's a, it's yeah, a hard really. place to leave, California. I had to leave it. Yeah. And I, still, I still miss it. Yeah, it's... It really is wonderful here. Yeah. I, I do have to say, I, I like Orange County more than I like either Los Angeles or San Diego. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know. San Diego, for some reason, it just gets a little too cold for me. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially and also, during the, the, the winter quarter the and early spring. Yeah, it's just, I don't know. Well, maybe it's just that we're too close to the ocean there. Yeah. Maybe it'd be a little different if you were in Kearney Mesa, but uh, yeah, yeah. also the, the military presence is a little bit too high. Mm, right. <laughs> That's always, right. it's always a little awkward, but uh, <laughs> I mean, otherwise though, um, loved it in San Diego. It, it's always hard to leave a place when you're there for a bit because you know, every, every good restaurant right. that there is yeah, and you, and we came back up to Orange County and we're living in a city I hadn't lived before, yeah. uh, Stanton. And it's like, well, I don't really know anything around here. <laughs>
I uh, I miss the food the most for sure. The food, the beer, the wine. That's the those yeah. are the the people come like maybe eighth on the list, but uh, the top three would be the food, the beer, and the wine. So uh, you said you so you started with uh, your undergrad at Berkeley. You said right. Yeah. Yeah, that's where I was for four years. And uh, well, what was there. the the course, the the degree there? Well, I went into Berkeley as an English major. Okay. I had a very specific plan for my life at that time, okay. uh, which was I was going to write fiction, and I was going to Berkeley and majoring in English to improve my fiction writing. Mm. And then uh, when I graduated with a degree in English, I would come back to my hometown and I would get a, a teaching credential and I would uh, teach high school English. Okay. And then what I, what I would do is I would teach high school English uh, nine months out of the year and during the summer I would write fiction. And um, this was the plan when you got into college? Like this yeah, is this what I'm going to do for the next you know, seven years or so? Yeah, that was that was the that was the entire plan. Um, the uh, now the only thing that that changed things a little bit was when I uh, was 17 years old, I became very very interested in language, something that I had not been interested in at all right. beforehand. I had no interest in language before that, but um, literally overnight, uh, one morning I woke up and I was very ashamed. It upset that there were millions of people that spoke French and that I wasn't one of them. Really? And so, yeah, and so I vowed then to learn every language on the planet um, without knowing how many there were. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, if I had to guess at that moment. Well, teenage arrogance helps. Yeah. 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 It does. I probably would have guessed generously about 150. <laughs> right. <laughs> I had no idea. Um, so, I started then as a junior in high school. Mm -hmm. um, it's towards the end of the junior year. I started just uh, studying languages on my own, just picking up whatever uh, textbook there was that could be had and just started studying them. Mm -hmm. And then for my last year, I was already slated to take AP Spanish. Um, I took uh, the first year of German with a bunch of freshmen. Mm -hmm. And um, I wanted to also take French, the only other language our school offered. Right. Um, but as a senior, my, my schedule was very, um, you know, it was, it was set because right. there were certain classes that I had to take and they were only offered at a certain time. The only period I had free, there wasn't a French one class. There was a French two class. I asked the teacher to just let me into it because I said that within two weeks I would be caught up with everybody else. Right. And she laughed at me and didn't <laughs> let me take it. Something I rue to this day. Right. <laughs> um, because I would have caught. She knew. I mean, I'm, I hope she knows yeah. what you do for a living now. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think she does. I don't know if she even remembers me. But um, but yeah, I would have caught up in two weeks. That would have been no problem. <laughs> right. Um, but um, so I, when I went to Berkeley... I started my very first semester as a as a declared English major because I'd already finished the prerequisites in high school. Right. So I took my first English major class, and then um, as an elective, I thought I would take uh, Arabic because mm. it seemed um, it seemed like a lot of fun. Uh, it was a writing system that I really enjoyed, 
Right. Uh, so I took so I took Arabic. I took uh, this English class. I took one other English class, and then I took a fun class on the Doors, the band, um, that was taught by a student because I didn't know how I would adjust to college life. Um, right. Yeah. After one semester, though, I was like, Oh no, this is, I can do this. I can mm-hmm. handle this. Right. And so the next semester, in addition to my English classes, I took the second semester of Arabic, the first semester of Russian, and the first semester of Esperanto, which was another student-taught class. Um, and I, I loved it. That was a good semester. What's um, Esperanto? Esperanto is a language that was invented in 1887 by a guy named Zamenhof from Poland, who okay. thought that if everybody on the planet spoke the same language, there would be world peace. Right. Uh, so, yeah, it, it didn't work out as well as I think he planned, but the language is is successful enough for a created language. Now there are still people who speak it. Um, yeah, it was There was quite a bit of excitement about it at the end of the uh, 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. Really? Until, uh, yeah, until the World Wars, really. Um, the World Wars kind of killed the international mood that right. captured people's imagination in the late 19th century, at least in Europe. And, um, and not only that in world war two, Esperanto started getting used or, or blamed for all kinds of nefarious purposes that, uh, the Chinese government was using it and saying, everybody should learn it. Uh, the, the Nazis thought that, uh, Esperanto was a Jewish plot to take over the world Right. It was just, uh, yeah, it was every, every which way it was getting battered. And so right. that really, that really killed all of its momentum, but it stuck around and uh. Uh, kind of experienced a revival in the seventies and, and, uh, people continue to seek it out. So, um, I, I took this language and that was the first time I'd ever heard of and never imagined that somebody could create a language Right. Like I'd never, I'd never even heard of that. I never thought it was possible. Uh, where's the cat? Um, so I, um, so I took this, this language and it was really interesting to me. And mm-hmm. m- my next semester I took a, co- a course. Well, I finally took French, but I also took a, a course in linguistics to fulfill a breadth requirement. Um, and linguistics, I took it really is a favor to my mother who thought I would enjoy it. Right. Um, I didn't think that it was going to be much. I was, I thought it was pointless because linguistics, you don't, um, you don't learn any languages. You just study them abstractly, right. which was kind of antithetical to my life goal. Is that so, what she studied? Like, why did she want you to do it? She had taken a course um, okay. uh, when she was in college. She had had me while she was in college. And so that was one of the courses she took. I think she was a teacher okay. and I think it was required. It's required for a lot of teachers usually to take an introductory linguistics course okay. or a language okay. acquisition course. Um, so she thought I would really love it. Um, and so I just thought whatever, but since it fulfilled a, a university requirement, um, I took it, uh, and pretty much, I mean, after the first day I was hooked it just blew me away that uh, that you could do this right a, as a class rather than it's just something that was fun like you'd actually be graded for it um, I mean it was so different you know from an English class where you're mm-hmm. 
reading books, talking about books and writing long papers. This was like looking at language data, which was basically a game to me. Um, and then that was the work. Uh, it was, it was, it was shockingly fun. Um, and so, uh, like uh, pretty much by the, the, after a couple of weeks of court of class, I was thinking about, mm, can I add this as a second major? And then two months or so in, when we started to discuss morphology, uh, which is the, you know, little bits of language that, uh, help put everything into paradigms, right. you know, whether they're singular and plural and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I started to, to, you know, encounter things in languages that I'd never seen. And I thought to myself, I wonder if you could put these things into a single language. Um, and, uh, and this is for, for me where the real epiphany moment was because I reasoned, well, there's no point in creating a new language for international communication because that, that one is Esperanto and nothing is possibly going to dethrone it. Right. right. But I thought, but I thought, what if I created my own language just for fun, just yeah. for my own personal use? And, uh, the moment I, I had that idea, I immediately started, I started creating my first language and it was a lot of fun. And, uh, and basically I kept up with creating languages as long as it's continued to be fun, which has brought me to the present 18 years later. Was this the first one, uh, Meg Davy? That was the one. Yeah, That was the one. Yeah. <laughs> I saw, I saw, I saw some of, uh, some of your show. Just to, because I I remember watching it, I think you started a while ago, right? And you've you've Uh, kept uh, intermittently, you you post once in a while, the YouTube show. uh, Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. You know, I have a a video that I recorded like a month and a half ago. Right. Uh, I just have not had time. Yeah. to actually put in the slides and everything. Um, right. I'm, I, yeah, so yeah, I'm still, I'm still doing it. I'm still yeah. doing it, but I got, I have a, I have a lot, I have about four months worth of work to finish by Monday. So, no way. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I've just really slammed and then I got three trips coming up in the next two weeks. So wow. after that period of time, I'll be free again. I think we'll, we'll see. The uh, the thing you mentioned about uh, Esperanto. So, is that does that happen? Has that happened historically? Happened a lot where someone just goes, we should all have the same language. Because I mean, from what we know, oh, of, yeah. English is the one that most of the world, most of the developed world, would speak. But yeah, uh, has there? So is it is it usually like a political move because it sounds like this became a political issue that's why it didn't really become the worldwide language it should have been or they wanted it to be uh, there have probably been and this is not an exaggeration or exaggeration more than a thousand languages created for international communication wow um, since the late 19th century esperanto wasn't the first um, wow so just in the yeah. last hundred and so years Yeah. Um, almost all of these projects are really bad and never, and never get off the ground. Right. Uh, only, only certain of them reach a critical mass. And of those that reach a critical mass, only Esperanto has ever been widely adopted. Um, which is really just a 
kind of a, a byproduct of the fact that it was around for the longest time right. and was the most popular at the time when international languages and the idea of them was the most popular. Um, it says, you know, it's nothing about the quality of the language, which is uh, supposed to be universal, but is entirely Western European. Right. Um, is it then? Is yeah. it an adoption thing? Like you just can't get enough people to teach it to their kids, so they can continue it. You know. Well, it wasn't really supposed to be necessarily. It, that wasn't how it was supposed to to spread. It was supposed to be the case that people would pick it up as a second language. Ah, right. Um, okay. and, and then and, and then use it. It was supposed to be simple to learn, uh, which it is if you speak a Western European language. It's um, it's basically copying those, but it's simpler. Mm-hmm. Um. But, um, and, you know, it, like I said, it enjoyed uh, a lot of success at that time. But yeah. um, after, I mean, especially, you know, that period starting with the World Wars and then the period that followed, um, that was really when English took off. Because, I mean, late 19th century, it's not the case that everybody in Europe was speaking English. Definitely right. not. If anything, maybe French. Um, but, I mean, you know, from like, the period, you know, 1919 all the way to now, um, English has just continued to gain an influence. I mean, everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. So, um, yeah, it it was, uh, it was certainly more of an issue, I think in the 19th century than it is now. Uh, so now at this point, I mean, really the best way to look at the best way to look at Esperanto is it's kind of like a television fandom. So, mm, you know, right. you go you all over the world <laughs> and if they're Game of Thrones fans, uh, they'll know certain things uh, that yeah. they'll share certain things in common. Right. They can have things they can discuss. It's the same thing with Esperanto. There are people who really like the language, who really enjoy using it and learning right. it. And so they go around the world and, and they kind of have fun talking to each other. It's like what Klingon became, but Esperanto didn't have a fictional universe that it belonged to. It was in the real world. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> but but I, I think it's the same type of thing, though. People were a fan of, first of all, just the language itself, but also uh, right. a lot of a lot of users are a fan of the original idea of the, the international, you know, unity yeah. uh, kind of ideals of Zamenhof. Um, they're just fans of that. And so they they go around and, you know, be fans of it by yeah. speaking the language and using it. The uh, you mentioned that you so. When you mentioned about the whole, like you could pick up what French one was within two weeks, like was it, was that something you were able to do with 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 the other languages you studied, like German, Spanish, French, like you were just able to pick it up quickly? I've gotten better and better at that um, yeah. over the years. In the case of French, though, I mean, I already spoke Spanish uh, and English fluently. F- French was no trick. Right. I mean, because they're so closely related. Yeah. Um, that, that type of thing isn't going to happen with, uh, with Arabic or Russian. Um, so, uh, you know, cause there's just, when you, when you start learning French, if you know English and Spanish, you just, I mean, you can just guess at parts of the grammar and most of the vocabulary. There's very little that's going right. to be new to you. It's just going to be a matter of the details and making sure you pronounce it right. Um, you certainly don't get that with Arabic. Uh, it, it, with that kind of background, there are very few words that you just know just by hearing them. Hmm. Um, and, and the ones that you do know are probably not ones that you're going to be using a whole lot. Right. Like, you know, uh, 
the, the borrowings that we have in English or things like, you know, algebra, alchemy. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's not something that's going to show up in a, in the first semester <laughs> of, of a language class a lot. Right. Um, so, um, so there it's like, it's all brand new. Uh, but the more languages you study, the more languages you look at, the less surprised you are by the type of phenomena that they present you. Hmm. Um, and, you know, also just language classes, the way they're taught uh, for me, especially when there's a native speaker there who's speaking it, are right. just really, they're really low impact. Um, you know, you, you learn how to say a few things each day. You just, you, you hear it, you repeat it, and then pretty soon it becomes a part of you. And then you have it for the rest of your life. Yeah. yeah. Is so, there, like, I, did you pick up Arabic uh, after that? Like once, did you actually start using it after studying it? No, I, I mean, I didn't really have anybody to use it. Well, with, no, but, yeah, you, yeah, you can't talk to people. But I guess if you travel, like, would you be able to be able to communicate with people if you travel to parts of the world where they use it? Not necessarily. Um it would be a little bizarre, but that has to do with the specifics of Arabic. Uh, so whenever, whenever you take a language, whenever you study a language, hmm. there's always going to be a particular way that they teach it. Right. So, for example, one of the things about you know learning French is that uh, the pronunciation is always Parisian French. So that's what you learn. Right. And so it sounds uh, when you speak it that way as an American, it sounds a little per- peculiar depending on where you're at. Sure. Um, and like with Spanish, it's always a big question. All right. Are you going to learn, uh, are you going to learn Mexican Spanish or are you going to learn Castilian Spanish from Spain? You mm-hmm. know, forget all of the other varieties of Spanish. It's only one of those two, but right. whichever one it is, you end up learning a different little bit of grammar and some different vocabulary with Arabic. The way that Arabic is taught is that you learn what's called, um, El Fusha, which okay. is the the Arabic that it's Quranic Arabic, um, and uh, it's it's written a, a particular way. In other words, fully vowed, and you learn this, and it has um, you know a very particular grammar and and a particular way of pronouncing everything. Right. Um, this language, as it is, is not really spoken anywhere. Right. right. Um, you know, it, what what you what every uh, what every country has is what's called el amia, which is kind of uh, uh, what they re- refer to as dialect, but is actually probably at this stage almost a totally different language. Hmm. And so, it would be the type of thing where I imagine if I were to go to a country and start speaking, it would be like hearing somebody say, you know, like you know, for Forsooth, uh, <laughs> where art thy bathroom or something? Right. Yeah. You know, they thought you're um, you're doing like a Arabic Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, and so um, if uh, now most everybody knows it, I think whether they speak it or use it or not, especially if they've been to school, right. so they would understand me. They probably wouldn't speak it back because it would be almost silly to them or formal to them. It'd be kind yeah. of weird. Uh, so it's like you could get by, I think, but where, uh, especially you're really going to miss out is if like, they're just local words that are used that you don't know, 
because you know they 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 think that's the better way to do it because all right well okay which you know which version are we going to learn yeah um often that ends up being egyptian uh, which is no help to you in Morocco. For right. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, it would be, I don't know, kind of like a thing where it's like, you know, instead of saying, you know, where's the bathroom, you end up saying, you know, like, you know, uh, you know, where is the washroom or something like that. Right. Peculiar. I think yeah. my, the closest I can imagine the comparable would be, so I grew up in, in India here and yeah. we, we go to school and we learn Hindi as, so we, at least the way I was taught everything, English is our second slash first. Like Hindi and English are equal as languages for us when we were, yeah. when we go to school. So we treat English as the first language, and then Hindi is the second language, and then you could choose a third language. I I chose French, but not really to learn it, but to just to you know pass the classes. And yeah. the Hindi that they teach us is not the Hindi we speak. Because huh. it's like we we call it uh, should Hindi and like should is pure, and it's like wow. it's so it's so uh, it's so pure that only the priests really speak it, the people in hmm. the, in in the temples like they're and when they speak it it's almost like I can't it's all because I think it because it was derived from Sanskrit, it still mm-hmm. maintains a lot of the the formality of it. And I think I'm, I mean I'm not fully sure. This is a this is a guess as an Indian person that mm-hmm. Hindi came as the spoken language that could come from the combination. At least the one we speak, it came from a combination of Sanskrit becoming making it Sanskrit simpler and simpler. And then my family, uh, like ages ago, before the Indian Pakistan separated, they were from Pakistan, where they spoke Urdu. So, and Punjabi at the same time. So we would end up with a mix of all these languages and that became Hindi, the one yeah. that we speak. And it's, it's, it's not, it's hard to teach what we speak every day because that's what you yeah. learn listening to your parents. And the school's never really going to teach you this because all the books are in the pure form. Yeah, it's, it's hard. You need to, you need somebody who's like a, a linguist to, to write a textbook of it. Um, I mean, hopefully one that's good at writing language, you know, right. instruction textbooks, because, you know, that's not going to be something that comes easy to most. Yeah. But they need to they need to very, you know, dispassionately figure out, OK, this is actually just what's taught in school. This is what's actually spoken. Right. And this is the systematicity of it without um, attaching, you know, value judgments to it the way that happens in school. Um, because otherwise you, you end up speaking like a textbook. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the amazing thing that that's the one thing I noticed when, even when I, I came to the U S for college, but you can just tell that what people study in school does not really meant to equip them for the real world, especially when it's, when it comes to language, like we're, no one talks like the way the books they tell us to read or the essays they tell us to write and the things they fix. The things they tell you that, oh, you're not supposed to talk like that. You're yeah. supposed to talk like this because that's not preparing you for the real world. Yeah, it's uh, and it's interesting, too, because often these uh, these grammar books, like the ones that you study in school, yeah. they're not written by linguists. 
so they're they're written by you know maybe professors of, of English if we're talking about English, mm-hmm. or 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 you know others like that, uh, people who have a stake in suggesting that people should always speak the same way, right, which is right. not something that linguists do, and so because of that, some of the stuff that gets taught in these books is not necessarily correct. Right. <laughs> just it just feels <laughs> correct to them. Yeah. The one thing that I, I'm experiencing this like right now. So I, because I grew up in a Hindi speaking household and I learned English in school, uh, my parents, my parents speak Punjabi as well. Mm-hmm. And my mom, uh, she gets a little upset with me when I don't speak it. And I try to tell her that I can understand you. I just can't speak it because you never spoke it to us. Yeah. And she's worried that after me, my kids are definitely not going to understand it because they won't hear it from their parents. Oh, yeah. And, no, there's not a chance. Right. And then, and then that got me <laughs> thinking, especially when I was thinking about, you know, what we, what, when, I was, when I knew I was going to talk to you, is that the whole idea of preservation of, of a language or even a dialect, it, it, can, it can seem so small generation to generation, but over the course of 50 years, we lose so much of what that language used to be or, and you know, it might just end up dying with the few people who still speak it. Like how does something like that affect someone who, I mean, you, you're in a world where not only are you creating new languages, but you love, you love languages. Is it, is that something that you really like, have you given up that existential thought of uh, what happens to all the languages that just die? I mean, at a certain point, all you can do is preserve them like butterflies, right? <laughs> because the 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 issue here is like it's so difficult because not everybody understands the value of simply retaining a language, whatever it is. Right. And so, um, you know, with something like uh, a language that that is is was spoken by parents that children are not picking up. It's hard to, uh, first of all, convince young children of the utility of speaking a language that they're not going to be using anywhere out except right. inside the home. Yeah. Um, you know, even if you're successful with one six-year-old, uh, if you take the entire community, it's going to be a minority of six-year-olds that right. actually <laughs> want to do this thing. Yeah. And then, of course, once they have it, um, it, it becomes even more difficult because, you know, now, like, you know, when you have your own family, you might be the only person in your family that speaks this language. Um, you know, you, your spouse might not. And so then it's like, all right, well, am I by myself going to try to teach this language to my child, despite the fact that there's nobody else in the community that speaks it? Yeah. Um, it's really hard to convince a, a community, especially uh, like a community that comes from somewhere else, of the value of simply preserving their own language when um it's the type of thing to learn a language you you have to use it constantly yeah and to use it constantly i mean you need to have a community even it's even if it's with just your family and uh sometimes life gets hard yeah (laughs) you know you got other things to do yeah Um, i mean wars were the problem with uh esperanto right yeah yeah. yeah, and now we have uh, mom. I'm sorry, I'm trying to watch TV. <laughs> yeah, well, that 
and also it's just like I mean you can imagine if you wouldn't this issue wouldn't exist if the if the television that the kids were watching was in Punjabi for example if all of his friends spoke it if all of their friends spoke it they would just learn it um, they is, would want to learn it this is exactly you know? I'm not joking my mom did the exact same thing to me last week she put on a a channel that is purely in Punjabi and she's like you if you hear it you'll at least keep you'll at least remember what it sounds like and you'll you'll maybe catch up because i mean some of the words we use i mean we have our culture is very, like our culture is fully punjabi though my family we just don't yeah. use the words in my generation but we we end up using words that are still like fragments of what you know our parents use but but yeah i think that's that's a good point but again like you said it's only going to affect a small percentage of the people who are even being forced to preserve the language out of their own that they're not really interested to do it because not everyone yeah. should feel the weight of of preserving culture like that yeah yeah and so it's it's especially a hard thing as an outsider to go to a community and just you know like you know descend on a cloud and right. say all of you need to keep speaking your language where it's like <laughs> You know, we've got so many other things going on in our lives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, it's 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 a hard thing to do. Right. Uh, so, I mean, really, what what linguists need to do is preserve where possible, uh, assist in revitalization where efforts are taking place, yeah. and then also just we need. And this is not just in the United States; it's in the entire world. We need mass education when it comes to language in general. Mm -hmm. And that's not like learning a specific language, but what language means, right. what we've discovered about language and the value of language itself. Mm -hmm. Because most people, and this is most people across the entire world, they look at language as a tool. They look at language as a tool, right? You know, just a, just a tool. Right. And, and it's like, well, if, uh, you know, if you have a if you have a hammer, and uh, I don't know the the hammer breaks, then you toss it away. Right. You don't use it. But I mean, that's not that's not what language is. Right. We use it as a tool, but that's not what it is. It's right. basically it's basically the record of a people, and not the not necessarily the people of one country. Yeah. It's the it's all the people that spoke this language, whether they were from one country or many. Whether they, you know, spoke it natively or, you know, a group took it up as a second language and started to use it. Every every speaker, every group leaves their footprints on this language. Right. Uh, and it and it's the history is right there itself in the words and in the grammar. Yeah. And so when you lose it, you lose that history. Yeah. And it's it's heartbreaking. Yeah. But, you know, again, like can't just force people to use a language right and so <laughs> you, you, the best you can try to do is try to convince them of the value if yeah. they don't see it so i i i want to focus on that part of it see we the whole aspect of seeing language as a tool the now i mean the podcast is called story talking so i think we're we're at a point where we can talk about the role of language in in storytelling in general. The mm. because I will, I mean, from my own limited perception of how the world existed before me, I would 
go as far to say that language store language has been around as long as storytelling has been around and vice versa because it's mm-hmm. you can't tell a story without without having language and, that's right you can't do anything without yeah it. <laughs> and before like this is one thing that i when i was a child i didn't really focus too much on it and then as i grew older i realized that so we have these famous books you know like the mahabharata mm-hmm. which were written by word of mouth because when it happened they were there's no real record of there's no papers or things they weren't writing down everything immediately as it was happening people were talking and then someone would write down the story they heard and it's kind of why we kind of have the fantasy element of what the mahabharata was because people are like yeah sure he was 8 foot tall and then the guy who <laughs> hears the same story the next town the next village over he's like you know i think he was 8 or 9 and then he becomes 9 foot tall and then before you know it it's like 5000 years later and he was 20 feet tall you know <laughs> so and so i mean is that is for me that's just fascinating that i'm using something that not not english not hindi but I'm using something that itself as an entity has existed. Language itself has been used to tell stories for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. I mean, if you call cave paintings a language, then that's that's even more. So when does something like that become a part of your job? When Like when you go and when you sit down, when you're inventing, when you're creating, constructing a language... Do you feel the weight of like, okay, I'm writing a language that existed a long time ago in the fictional world that it's set in, you know, like, yeah. I mean, you can use any example of any language that you've created, but like, how does that process work for you that you're, you're, you're fictionally creating history? Yeah, the, that's, that's the best way to do it. If you're going to aim for um, a naturalistic language, which is one like the ones that, spoke, that are spoken here on earth. Right. That's kind of what you have to do. Um, the only uh, difference is that um, languages are huge, huge systems. Um, and, you know, they're, they're spoken by, you know, billions of people over the course right. of thousands of years. So you have to do a condensed version just because we don't have either the resources or the time uh, in our lives right. to to create the fully fleshed out history of billions of people over thousands of years. You got to kind of like do as best you can. Also, the other thing that makes it difficult is that we don't know how language emerged. Um, Like the very first time. Yeah. So because of that, and you know, we're, we're probably never going to know unless there's some brand new Genesis situation. Yeah. Uh, just because our records only go back as far as writing does, and writing is nowhere near as exactly. old as language, right. like not even close. Right. Um, so uh, it's at a certain point in time, you have to start and say that, you know, everything that happened in the history of this language before this point is lost to the history of time. Yeah. And uh, because that's the best we can do. Uh, but at that point, then you know, linguists have learned a lot about how the sounds of a language change over time, how the meanings of a language change over time, and how the grammar of a language changes over time. And so as a language creator, you can use that information to simulate a language evolution Mm. and show how one language starts in a very old state and becomes something new. 
And so that's what I do with all of the naturalistic languages I create. Um, it takes a lot of time, but the end result is a lot more realistic, a lot more right. authentic. Um, and, you know, as you're doing this, this is when, especially when you're creating the lexicon, that's where you can tell the story of these people and you can kind of, um, you're, you're kind of writing it as a writer or as an artist. Uh, you're, you're writing down the, you know, the footprints right. of, of these speakers in the words that you create and in the idioms that you create, because, you know, sometimes the, the idioms that you create are themselves relics yeah, and the speakers yeah. will continue to use them and probably not even have any idea why they say them. Yeah. They just, that's what everybody has always said. <laughs> the, so we, we went over how, the Meg Davy was your first language that you created for yourself. Yeah. Fun. When, what was the language, what, when was the first time you figured out that I can get paid to do this? Uh, it was not, uh, probably the, the first time I thought I could get paid to do it was very shortly after I created my first language. Really? Um, yeah, I, I got, I got this idea that I could create languages for other people for money. I went on America Online, where you could look at other people's profiles and another relic of, they of have. olden times. <laughs> yeah, and um, and I sent I sent them uh, uh, I picked out like forty people, mm -hmm. and I sent them an email, something that we would later come to understand or know as spam. Right. <laughs> I didn't uh, I didn't think anything of it at the time. Right. And so I sent these people an email that had keywords that I was looking for by hand in their profiles, suggesting that I could create a language for them for uh, $40. Um, and one person responded, a guy in high school who wanted a language for his D&D &D campaign. And so I created this, this language for him, um, really on pencil and paper, and mailed it to him. He was in Oklahoma. Wow. And, he, and he mailed me back a check for $40. Um, <laughs> it was shortly after this time that I found um, the language creation community online. Really? Yeah. And, and had, um, had those yeah, guys also and that was, figured it out this way too? Like did, do other people they'd, also start no, like they'd this? No, they'd figured out the truth that there was no money in language creation <laughs> at all. Absolutely none. You're um, right. <laughs> and, and not only that, I... I, I figured out as I started to look at everybody else's languages that I was not very good at this. In fact, I was really bad at creating languages. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, I, I shut down that original website and, um, and basically started to study and learn and get better at creating languages. Um, but uh, in learning their stories, though, I really kind of understood where language creators stood in, you know, in society and in the world. Right. Because, I mean, they, they, these were people, many of whom were in their 40s, 50s, 60s, even, right. talking about um, how, you know, no, none of their friends or family knew that they created languages. None of their coworkers knew how they, like, would bring it up and they would get laughed at and ridiculed. Right. Um, it's like, this is not... Um, I was like, this is not something that, this is not something that people value. 
Yeah. Which, um, which blew me away because when I came up with the idea on my own, um, it was something that required a lot of, you know, a lot of expertise. It took a lot of time. Um, and you know, it took a lot of skill. Right. And so it's, um, and it was, um, intellectually rigorous, right? Because there were so many different aspects to it. And so I, I assumed that it had immense inherent value. Uh, and that everybody else should see this. Hmm. And so it was, it was a little shocking to me to discover the way that language creators were treated. Right. Um, yeah, just not, and not just in our country, but everywhere else in the world. Right. And, um, and, uh, you know, I, and I, and I, and especially as I started to see everybody else's languages and see how good they were, how much better they were than mine. It was especially, uh, you know, upsetting to me that they would be treated that way. But, um, you know, there was little that, there was little that one could do about it just as a lone language creator. Uh, you know, in fact that when I first told somebody in, in the linguistics department of Berkeley that I was creating a language, they laughed at me. Right. Um, and that was, um, you know, I I mean, coming from, again, my, my arrogant teenage self, Right. To assume that everything that I do, I did was amazing and perfect. Um, it was really a, a window into a different world, you know? <clears throat> and so, um, I kind of, uh, you know, made it, made it my goal to you know, talk about it to everybody, uh, to show them what I was doing, because I thought that what we were doing as language creators was something immensely valuable. And I thought everybody else should see it. Right. And, and so like, you know, I, I, I wasn't shy about talking about it. Um, little by little, of course, uh, uh, things started to change, but, um, at least within, you know, linguistics where I started to see that what we were doing was, was being valued. Um, but, uh, nevertheless, there was never any expectation that we would get to a point where language creators would be paid. Um, if, if it was going to happen, maybe 60, 70 years down the line, Yeah, you know, um, and so the, uh, when the Game of Thrones job came up, it was a complete and total shock um, that such a thing, first of all, would ever happen, that they would actually hire language creators as opposed to random people uh, to do the job. Right. And, and that it was going to be for, I mean, we didn't know that the show itself was going to be, you know, big and huge and successful. Sure. But yeah. we knew that it was going to be on HBO and, you know. So whatever life it was going to have, if it was on HBO, it was going to be serious. Right. You know, right. it was, it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't going to be something that was on like, you know, UPN or something yeah, like that, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, so, uh, wh- you know, whatever it was going to be, this was going to be a, a big deal just because it was on HBO. Right. And so like this literally happened, I mean, overnight, there was no ramp up. There was, it was just one day we all lived in a world where language creators were never going to make any money or have any respect doing what they were doing. And then the next day, suddenly there's a job and we're going to make money and we're probably going to get some attention and respect. And that was it completely overnight was no ramp up at all. And that was, so Game of Thrones was the the first big deal. Like, I mean, for, I mean, for you, but just for, I mean, I'm guessing like since then for the whole, for the whole group, for the whole industry. 
Yeah, because, you know, there have been languages created before. Yeah. But uh, every time it was done, it was either uh, some linguist who'd never heard of language creation before was hired right. to do it. It was like, you know, hey, you want to try out a new hobby? We don't care how what the result is and we'll pay right. you. So it's like, OK. Um, or it was uh, or it wasn't even a linguist. It's just a yeah. random person. Yeah, there's no there's no accountability. Then there's no reason for someone to try their best or to try to, you know, really make something absolutely new. Oh, I'm no. Well, I'm, they all did try their best, but they just didn't know what they were doing. Right. Okay. Um, <laughs> You know, it'd be kind of like, um, I don't know, it'd be kind of like if there was a, uh, you know, a movie coming out and somebody just, you know, called me up and said, um, hey, you've seen some movies. Would you like to do the movie poster? Right. I'm like, <laughs> like OK, that sounds like fun. Yeah. I'll give it a shot. And then, you know, I, I try my best and put together a poster and then they say it's great. <laughs> I'm like, cool. You know. Right. Without having any knowledge that there's people that actually do that type of thing. Um, right. So this is going to be the first time that somebody from the language creation community was hired specifically, that they were hired because they were good at what they did. Um, and that was revolutionary because, you know, it, that was the thing. Even if, you know, there was going to be another big job, we just assumed that it was not going to go to a language creator because it never right. did. Right. You know? um, so it was it was huge. Um we didn't know, of course, how big uh, Game of Thrones was going to be. I, I assumed that even if the show only ran for a couple of seasons and then was canceled, that um, the people that would care about it would be the fans of the book series. Right. George R. R. Martin already had a huge number of fans. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I figured that if anything else, that would be where it would live. And maybe you'd have, um, you know, some kind of minimal celebrity thereafter within right. the fan community of those books as, Oh yeah, that was the guy that created language that worked on that show that ran for two seasons. You know? Right. Right. <laughs> and now it's, it's, uh, that's, I mean, that's the, that's the fascinating thing about, about fandom is that people, now that they know that this is something that, you know, someone works really hard on, like, and they, they, they start speaking it, they learn it. I mean, they, you wrote a book about it. the, People want all this. People then not only do they love the authenticity, but eventually, because they're fans, they they expect authenticity. So you have to keep working harder to make sure that everyone feels, you know, satisfied. But I think what, what I find really fascinating is that you're doing something that is it's, it's a fictional language, but mm. by creating it, by making it a thing you're also making it a real language and because of pop culture because of the internet what is what what defines real and what defines fictional really because if, if enough people like it if enough people understand it and they say it like people get married and they speak dothraki for their vows i mean that's would you i mean would would eight year would 10 year old you believe that you would make something that people would be using like that yeah, well, ten-year-old yeah. me would have been blown away that somebody could create a language. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, the the thing is, like, basically, the moment that you invent the language and you set it down somewhere, I mean, it's it's real or it's as real as any other language on the planet is because right. these things don't actually exist. Yeah. I mean, I mean, if if every single person just goes out because we have a, a meteor 
you know, just uh, and the meteor kills every only living things on the planet, leaves right. everything else intact. Yeah. You know, it, it's not like the languages are going to exist anymore. They'll be gone. Right. Um, there'll be books so that maybe people could learn them. Right. But there's no guarantee that they'll learn them and use them the same way. Yeah. So <clears throat> the thing that's, you know, the thing that is fake about these languages or the thing that's that's pretend is that we are pretending that there are people alive that speak this language and have spoken it for many years. Yeah. So that's that's the fake part. Right. But the language itself is still there. Yeah. The only the only difference is that, um, you know, when it comes to, say, for example, people using the language, there is no guarantee that they are using the language the way I use it. Right, um, right. You know, it's kind of like, I mean, the same thing is true of really any language learning situation. There's no guarantee that your child is using the, the language the way that you're using it. Right. Uh, but it's just that there's so many people that they basically come to a point where they use it like 99% uh, the same way that other people around them use it. Right. Uh, but even so, it changes, you know, gradually over time because all languages change. And of course, <clears throat> they actually innovate things. Right. Um, you know, whether it's an individual or groups, they, they you know, try out new slang, new idioms. Yeah. Um, many of them die the moment after they're uttered. Some yeah. stick around <laughs> for a while, right. maybe five, six years, maybe 10 years, and then die. And then some suddenly become a part of the language. And then, you know, there it is. And now it's there forever. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to these languages that I'm creating, uh, I mean, all, all you can really say about it is that I've created it in a certain state yeah, and that this, this state is the way that I use it. And of course, you know, even the way I use it is going to change a little bit over time as I get more comfortable with it. But, mm -hmm. um, but then when others start to use it and pick it up, the way they're using it might not be the way that I use it. Um, it may be what I would call like grammatically wrong right. if I were going to translate something for the show, but then that's their business. Right. They decide <laughs> that they want to use it that way. And suddenly if there's two or other th three other people that understand what they're saying then they're, then they're using it that way and that's the language for them. Right. Um, and that's, I mean, that's really all there is to it. It's kind of the same thing, thing with every language enough people do it you know if one person does it is an error it's an error if you know uh, 10 or 12 people do it you know it's slang yeah if millions of people do it it's the language right <laughs> you know i i tried to use the example of how uh maybe it's because of the internet maybe because everyone lives a text-based life that there's so many people that you you're who don't know the difference between your and you are and they type the up the other all the time, and I just wonder, like, if the reader of the text doesn't know the difference too, have they just re have they just changed how grammar works? Have they just changed how maybe maybe we are in a world where it's interchangeable, where you can make a mistake, but if the person receiving the mistake doesn't know it's a mistake, should we even care? And I hope well, I mean I hope we should. <laughs> well, here's the thing, though. Uh, with that, it's just a matter of pronunciation. So in other words, if you forget that we have a writing system at all, 
and yeah. English just becomes a spoken language. Yeah. There isn't any different between any difference right. between your and your. They're pronounced yeah. the same way. Yeah. They, yeah. And, and and they can be reduced in exactly the same way in exactly the same context. So it could be your or your. It could be your or your. And, and that's people why. are speaking the spoken language and and less and they're writing the spoken language instead. Yeah, but, yeah. but not only that, people have been speaking like this for like a hundred years now. Yeah, <laughs> there's never there's it's been a long time since there's been any difference between your and your. Right. It doesn't mean people forget that you can say you are in certain circumstances. Yeah. Um, because you can also say you know uh, we are they are. Yeah. So both words are understood separately very well. Um, it's getting passed on uh, 100% perfectly. Right. Nobody's confusing these things. Um, the the writing system is just uh, it's a separate convention. Yeah. Uh, and frankly, if you ask my opinion, I think we should just get rid of the apostrophes altogether. You know, German doesn't have apostrophes. Uh, yeah, they're doing basically just fine. the same grammar there. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and they're like, well, well, how will we know what the difference is between its and its? It's like, well, how do you do it in speech? Yeah, we you don't have it either. Just know. I just, I'm thinking of Hindi and we, every word is, I mean, we have half words where we, we, we use an alphabet. I mean, I mean the alphabet. Yeah. We use, we use half an alphabet. Like my name in Hindi is just one syllable and it's, uh, yeah. it's three letters and, but it's two and a half letters really. So yeah, I guess, I guess it really doesn't matter. I mean, we, English is the one that gets people want to become a grammar Nazi about but I, I, I just realized that if Nazis didn't even have the apostrophe, then maybe we should use it. Maybe we should use a different term to describe them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's with writing systems, it's always a very a shaky balance. Yeah, because language changes over time. And if your writing system doesn't change to match what's spoken, right. then your writing system becomes old. Yeah. Uh, and this is the case with English. Our writing system is very, very old, yeah. very, very old. And we haven't updated it. But now you have an issue where, let's say you're, you, you, you said, all right, we're going to start over and we're going to spell everything like it's pronounced. Right. Well, <laughs> like who pronounces it? Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Because an English speaker in India versus an English speaker in Australia versus an English speaker in, in London versus an English speaker in California. Uh, you're not going to find a common ground. Yeah. You know, where you say, okay, we're all going to spell this. We're all going to pronounce it the same way. It's yeah. not going to work. It's better that our English, that our writing system is old because it's getting more and more to be like Chinese, where at a certain point, you know, if, if the language keeps evolving, there's not going to be any connection between right. how it's pronounced and how it looks. Yeah. But that will actually be a benefit because then all you know, all of the many English speakers of the world who pronounce it in all crazy different ways will all look at the same word and know what word is meant. That's amazing. What I'm really curious about is how does it, I mean, for example, I mean, of course, Game of Thrones is, is, is the big one, but you've been making languages for TV shows and movies over the last, you know, seven years or so, right? Mm-hmm. So what happens when someone calls you up? Like now, I mean, if, if you're if you're the go-to guy, they, they, they rely on you and they trust you that, okay, he's going to... Do they just leave you alone? And, and, I mean, in the case of Game of Thrones, you had the book, the book's already there. But when it comes to movies and, and other TV shows, like, do they leave you alone or do the creators 
and the authors of the books, do they get involved in how you're interpreting what they in, they themselves imagined the, the language to sound like? It's different for every uh, show and movie. I mean, um, you know, like, like for example, I, I worked in a show called The Shannara Chronicles. I've never met or even talked to Terry Brooks. It's based on his books. Right. Um, um, and then, you know, uh, with, with certain shows and movies, sometimes it's totally hands-off. Yeah. And they let me do what I want to do. I like those the best. Other times they get in there and they care. They, what they care about is the, the sound of it. They right. don't care about anything else. And so um, they'll they'll give me some feedback on the sound of it and I'll have to change it based on, you know, what it, what it is they're they're looking for, what they're asking for. Um, but I mean, you know, other than that, um, uh, I mean, uh, n- even in the most even in the circumstances where they have the most input, 90 percent of the work is still completely me on my own. Right. Because it's like it's not like I get any feedback on grammar. Right, uh, or because anything like you're, that. I, you're I'm, making yeah, it I'm up. totally free to do what I want. Yeah. yeah. The does it happen? So I mean, do you eventually then also kind of become the the dialect coach of the actors because you have to tell them how to say it, or do they do they mess up what you give them because you have to, or do you have to give it phonetically for them to figure it out on their own? I I do write it down phonetically, but I also just record every single line, right, every single line right. that's ever on any show or movie I've worked on has been recorded by me and they just wow. listen and repeat. Um, but, uh, and then every so often I do serve as the dialect coach and I work directly with the actors. Um, that's always good. Um, but, uh, and then every so often, I mean, you know, 90% of the time it's, it's good enough. Right. Uh, what, what, what comes out? Sometimes it's terrible. Right. <laughs> um, and then sometimes it's excellent, but most of the time it's pretty good. Do you, I mean, this is, this is as, as a, just talking to a person who watches movies and TV shows, do you, <clears throat> once you watch the thing that you were a part of, are you able to watch it as a, just as a fan or do you, are you focusing on, did they get it right? Like when you're hearing them talk. Uh, I've learned to let that go. Right. I had to, I had to, you know, yeah. because it was never going to be exactly the way I wanted it to be. Right. Um, uh, I mean, even if I was, even if, even if like they were, we were working and they, and they did like, you know, nine out of 10 takes perfectly. Right. Um, the editor might decide that that, 10th take was the best one right the one where they screwed up the language doesn't know you know the language really yeah doesn't know doesn't care they just care what looks best for the scene and they're using subtitles really so they just care about yeah everything working there yeah and so there have been i'm sure that there have been plenty of circumstances where the actor themselves sees the final product and says no that's (laughs) the one where i screwed it up right right do you, you you need to be you need to be in charge of the entire process all the way through to make right. sure that it came out exactly correct if the writing system was done by the art department it's going to be terrible um right. and what they're going to be writing is going to be an analog of english so they'll be yeah. like this is the letter for a this is the letter for q it's like eh. yeah it's that's just garbage um that's like but, 2d you know, versus 3d like you can't really compare them 
Yeah. But uh, they, they, whenever that's the case, they always like to throw in secret messages. Yeah. Um, like that. It's always, it's always so obvious and ridiculous though. Yeah. Cause it's like, <laughs> especially if you're, if you're in the United States and you see a writing system, you call it an alphabet because yeah. you think everything is an alphabet. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's like the, the, they'll look at, you know, Devanagari and think, oh, well, that's, that's a neat alphabet. It's like, well, you know what? It doesn't, it's not an alphabet. It doesn't yeah. work like that. But of course, if you were to actually give it to an art department and they were going to write something in Devanagari, they probably would, <laughs> you know, do the thing where it's like, okay, this is the, this is the glyph for D and it's, yeah. who knows if it's going to be the right D. Yeah. And then this is the entire glyph for A when it stands alone. They're going to forget about, you know, you know, who cares if there's actually diacritics or anything. They'll just put the whole one as if the, the word started with that. Right. And they'll spell things out like that and probably spell it out in English. <laughs> <laughs> what is the, I mean, let's say you're, you're making the, the language for a movie like Thor or, mm. or Bright. Like how long is how long do they give you and how long does it really take for you to to make something from scratch till you know the stuff that you need to hand over um usually i get two to three months sometimes i get more sometimes uh, i get less right realistically it sh i should have six months to a year right that's oh that's that's what you would need to really make up the whole like we talked about the whole we have to believe that this, this language has been spoken for, you know, thousands of years within these people. Yeah. If I got, if I got a good, if I got a good six, seven months to work on it yeah. without interruption, I would feel good about that. Yeah. Two to three months is always a rush. Right. The, so I have a lot of uh, young people that listen to the podcast and the mm. thing that, that I like to focus on towards the end is I like to have them see all the different when you when you're someone who has uh you you're passionate about about choosing a career in in the creative in the creative fields you i want them to be able to see that oh there's many different ways to express yourself and and to be creative and to be involved in storytelling the so what i would what i like to end the thing on is if you had to if you could imagine that you're you're one of some of the people listening to this are, you know, 15, 16 year old versions of you uh, who may or may not know that this is the path that they are interested in or uh, going to be interested in. What kind of message or piece of advice or something to for them to to inspire them? Would you want to share that? Oh, this is the path that I took. And, and this is what I what I suggest you guys look into when you're when you're thinking about this. Well, first of all, I didn't even have any idea that a human being could create a language until I was 19 years old. Right. I have no idea what my life would have been like had I had I known this earlier. Yeah. If I if I might have started becoming interested in languages earlier, if I yeah. might have might have started creating languages earlier, uh, if, if I had. I mean, a lot of language creators do begin when they're when they're kids. I can't imagine what I would be like now if I had eight right. more years under my belt. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it, I, I think that especially with language creation, it might not be the case that you end up creating your own language or many languages. Uh, it might, it just might not be a thing that you do, right. but none of that time that you spend playing with created languages or trying to create a language is wasted. 
all of all that you're doing is you're engaging with language you're engaging with it in perhaps a different way but you're necessarily i mean you're exercising that portion of your brain and you're expanding it to the idea of what different languages can be what a language can do yeah uh ultimately it's going to help you um since you know we can't do anything in our entire lives without language yeah so the more that we think about it the more that we use it the more that we interact with it the many different ways we interact with it it's all valuable and it will all be of use to you later on <laughs>